Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 2108 of the Survival Podcast. It's November the 1st, 2017. And if you're like, holy crap, Jack has his voice back, you're right. And if you can't tell, I'm in a good mood. And I'll tell you... Um, Not only do I have my voice back, usually I record the intro and the outro to the show before the interview. I got behind today. I've actually just got off the phone with Ben Falk, who will be our interview today, for over a one-hour conversation, and this is still my voice. It's still a little scratchy in the back, but we're about through this, and I am in a good mood. I do not like it when I don't have my voice. It's like it's my superpower. It's the thing that I use to make my living. It's the thing that I use to teach. It's my thing to have my voice, and I'm glad to have it back. So before we bring Ben on, I want to let you know what we're going to be talking about with him today. We're going to be talking about heating through the northern winter with wood and a lot of the things going on in his permaculture site. He has one of the most amazing permaculture sites in the country. Now we're going into its 14th year, and to say that I am impressed with what he has done is uh, an understatement of the year. Anyway, before I bring Ben on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? I know it's shocking. I know you're like, oh, I can't believe that I would ever get Berkey stuff from Jeff the Berkey Guy. But yeah, that's what you'll get. The Berkey water filtration systems and all the parts to service it and keep it running for years. Get your new filters whenever you need them, though you go so long before you need them. It's pretty amazing. But you can get it all from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. I know what you're thinking. Like, I get a Berkey anywhere. Why would I go to Jeff? As one of the largest dealers of Berkeys in the United States, he has great pricing, but the real reason is incredible service. Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason is the most like service-oriented maniac I've ever worked with. I, I've seen him, honest to God, stop in the middle of a discussion panel to answer a customer service email. That's the kind of service you get from Jeff the Berkey Guy. Don't buy your Berkey from some guy at a gun show that got into the business of selling water filters last week because he saw Doomsday Preppers or something like that. Deal with the one and only, the true Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason at his website, Directive21.com. He has a lot of great stuff other than Berkey's to help you with your prepping needs, so check it out soon, Directive21.com. Next up, KnifeKits.com, long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Hey, have you ever thought about building your own knife, like something custom and unique to you, but just thought, it's too tough, I don't have the... The time to come to Jack's workshop and, and work with Patrick Rohrman and learn, you know, how to make knife from a, a blank piece of steel. I, I, I just, I, I, I can't do it, but I'd like to do it. Well, with KnifeKits.com, you can. Anyone can build their own custom knives. And it might be just something you do a few of because it's fun. It might be a father-son or a father-daughter or a mother-daughter project. Or it might be something that leads you into a side hustle or just a hobby making knives for your friends. Or... It could be a pathway to a long-term business venture. You just don't know. But it's worth taking a few steps and learning the basic skills necessary to make your own knives. And you can do that and get a lot of other really great stuff like Kydex for making holsters and other cool stuff at KnifeKits.com. Remember, both the Berkey Guy and KnifeKits.com do offer you a discount if you are a member of the Member Support Brigade. And that's a good time to remind you, uh, you know, you should consider joining the Member Support Brigade because the Member Support Brigade supports the show that you listen to every day. 
And I'll tell you what else the member support brigade does. It pays for itself. Guys, if you become an MSB member and you use the discounts, if you'll go look at them, and whenever you need something in the prepping world, think, I'm going to go check and see if I can get that from a discount provider, and you use them and you do that for a year, I promise you, unless you don't buy anything at all, ever, you will get your money back for the MSB. It just works out that way. I've worked long and hard to build over 70 partners in the MSB to provide discounts to things you've been buying anyway, and it comes out to about 20 cents an episode. All you can do is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on the Members tab to learn more and to sign up. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, active duty or prior service, either one, you do qualify for a discount. To get that discount before you join, Just send me an email with TSPC discount in the subject line, and I will send you back uh, an, uh, an email with the discount code. Just tell me about your service in one or two sentences. That's all it takes. And with that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today, Ben Falk from Whole Systems Design. Hey, Ben, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Good to be here again. Man, a lot of people know who you are in my audience, um, especially since you're part of the Expert Council as well, but... We have new people listening all the time, so I always like to get a guest to kind of give us their background. So you, can you kind of tell us, like, Ben Falk is sitting in study hall in high school trying to get the courage up to ask the girl next to him out or something like that and trying to figure out what to do, what to do with his life. And how do you go from that guy to, like, this awesome permaculture designer living in the uh, Mad River Valley of Vermont? Oh, I don't know. I don't know exactly, but I think it had a lot to do with um – with wanting to be outside, you know, hate, I still hate to be indoors, hated school every, every year of it, you know, just felt like prison being indoors on beautiful days and, um, not really being challenged with that kind of material compared to a lot of, you know, hands-on more tactile challenges. Um, and so I think, yeah, and then I got, I got really into like wilderness travel, wilderness living, backpacking, canoe tripping, um, mountaineering, rock climbing. So I actually was going to go be a mountain guide for a while. I wasn't even going to go to college at all. Um, and then ended up kind of getting into a few colleges, surprisingly, and ended up going that way, um, but still focused on the um, outdoor experience, so studying like outdoor recreation and ecology. And then fell in with John, of course, with Dr. John Todd at UVM, Burlington, Vermont, University of Vermont, and really kind of uh, came into contact with ecological design. And actually, I took a permaculture course sophomore year that year in, in college as well. So um, that's kind of when I found uh, found out we could, you know, improve our situation here in the world without just protesting or, you know, writing letters to whoever, senator and stuff that I, I, I kind of was in trying to fix problems before that, but I was always just a, disenchanted with the roots of solving problems, you know, politically, and then I realized we could just, you know, fix things ourselves uh, through design. What a radical idea, that we, yeah. that we could yeah. fix things ourselves instead of waiting for somebody to do it for us or begging them to do it yeah. for us or asking them to make somebody else do it for us. It's a, it's, it's right. a, it's a crazy it, thing. Well, it really was still is a radical idea, I think, for, for like, academic folks and for the world. I grew up in, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, kind of pretty liberal environment, liberal town, and, and that's still probably a pretty radical idea. I think people still think, as you know, you know, government and large organizations are, are kind of the only ways we can, you know, try to address the situation, and it's 
obviously proving to uh, not be the case, really. Well, and I think that that's a that's a universal political. Like people that see political as a solution, it's universal. It left has one way of coming at it, like you just mentioned. Right has another way, though. It's like, well, just free the market and get out of the way. Well, if you want the market to be the solution, then you have to be the market. It's not just this magical thing that will just occur if we just, you know, get out. I'm all for getting out of the way. Don't get me wrong. But if you actually want the things you want accomplished done, you have to get in the game and be active. It's like, it's to me, I see a lot of the politics like the the fan at the basketball game, right, that, that, that chants a lot and yells when the other guy's throwing free throws and stuff and really believes in the end he made a difference in the final score. Because, you know, even ye yelling at the guy when he's shooting free throws, those guys in the NBA, they've been doing that. They don't hear you. They don't care. You've made zero difference by cheering and ranting and screaming. If you want to actually make a difference in the score, you got to get on the court. And the, the fortunate thing is in the world of permaculture, uh, homesteading, all that stuff, there's lots of courts. We can all pick our own court yeah. we want to play the game on, but you got to do something. And that's what I love about you, man. You've been... You've been hard at it for like 14 years, and uh, I've got you on to talk today. The like the headline we're talking about is dealing with cold climate and wood heat and stuff like that. As we end up today, I want to talk to you about some of the stuff that you've got going on because your your site's been active for like 14 years now, and I know you've had a great year. Yeah. But let's let's hold on that and lead off with the the, the topic du jour, I guess, which is heating, you know, the home in cold climates. Because uh, you have sure. a unique reason we're talking about that today. Before we even get into that, tell people like what you're dealing with right now, or what I sh you're not yeah, dealing with it. Yeah. You're you're happy and and, go, and doing yeah. fine, but what is what are the people of Vermont dealing with right now? Yeah, it's a good time. Good time to have this call. We set this call up like more than a month or two ago, I think. And sure enough, we had this big windstorm um, like Sunday, I guess it is, and now it's Wednesday, and it pretty much the biggest power outage um, to the state since some big ice storm in, like, 98, I believe. Um, and so we still don't have power. We're actually um, – we actually usually get power back really quickly because the line – we're at, kind of at the end of the line, but the main line just below us goes to a big ski area, and so they always keep that on. But, um, yeah, we haven't had power now in a few days, and – It's been a great, you know, it's always a great experience when the power goes out for us because we have all we need. You know, we definitely have plenty of water through. We got water in the ponds. We got water coming out of spring. We have, you know, we fill a bathtub just for convenience to have water right in the house. Um, we have a generator which can pump well water, so, you know, plenty of water. Um, that's without even collecting rainwater, which we actually do and can access easily. We've got wood heat, and we've got... The, A years where the wood, dry wood stacked up, so we're not, remote. that's how we heat anyways, you know, whether the power's on or not, that's our form of heat. And then our wood stove, wood cook stove heats our hot water, and we have a gravity feed tank that pressurizes that, so and we have hot showers, and we could go, I mean, it's interesting to realize we really could go through the whole winter this way. The power doesn't need to come back on for months. <laughs> and we would have enough food, enough water, enough heat. Uh, I mean, we'd have a fine time of it. You know, it'd be a little inconvenient here and there. Getting some work done on the computer yeah. and printing things, you know, that's a little. That's just convenient. Um, I only run the generator a little bit every day to keep the – actually, every other day to keep the freezers frozen. And I think that would be the next change is really interesting. Uh, probably in another week or two, you know, we're kind of living like the power is going to come back on. 
Yeah. Probably will. You know, we know this yeah. isn't like some major, major, major event. This is just a localized thing, and they're fixing the lines as we speak. But I was talking with my wife, Erica, yesterday, and I was like, oh, you know, we'd be doing things a little differently if we knew the power might not come back on for weeks or months um, or ever. <laughs> and we would really be conserving our propane tanks for the generator, and we'd be probably just just trying to plow through all our frozen food uh, and drying it over the week. We'd be drying and fermenting like all day every day or you know if, you, if it was a little later in the year you just put the freezers outside right yeah no, that's the thing it's, it's, yeah just another yeah well one of our freezers is in an un, uninsulated building and we're almost normally it would pretty much stay frozen at this point without being plugged in and we're right at that yeah. point in the year yeah where basically everything's about to be frozen up for up here if we have a good old-fashioned winter you know three to five months so um yeah, so you know, it's, it's it's nice to see, as you know, when when all your preparations um, get tested and you realize, wow, you know, there's some things I'll tweak, but um, we're in good situation. Most people are not that happy about this right now. They're going to stay at friends' houses and they don't have very basic things, you know, needs met. Like they don't have drinking water even, and uh, we have we have everything we could want, you know, communications as well, and. Uh, yeah, so it's nice to see. And the wood, I mean, the wood stove, wood cook stove is at the heart of it, really. Didn't you tell me when I was up there that it's actually the way you have your hot water set up with your wood cook stove, that at a certain point, whether you feel like you need a shower or not, and it's easier to go a little longer without a shower when it's like, you know, 15 below zero outside, you have to take one to relieve the pressure on the water heater. <laughs> or yeah, something that. Like, like, there's a point where like you got to use some hot water whether you want to or not. Right. It, there's the 50 gallon tank uh, and a little water jacket, a little stainless steel um, water jacket that is in the back of the firebox. So when the fire is running, you know, it's just heating that water, thermosiphoning up to the tank, so there's no pump. And then yeah, if you're cranking the stove, like when it's really cold out, we're running the stove pretty much 24/7. After a couple days, if you're not using the hot water at all, um, you could get the tank above boiling, which obviously you don't want to do. No. Then it'll <laughs> blow it'll blow off the pressure relief valves, which we ha we've done. Actually, we tested it, and it works great. It blows off steam and hot water into a little a little um, pot that we put behind the stove in case that happens. But um, yeah, and, you know, you got to run the hot water either into the sink and just do some dishes, or you know, hey, t we just take a shower, take yeah. an extra long shower or a bath. Cause, um, it's always easy. I don't need ever any convincing to take a long hot shower or a bath. So um, yeah, it's a good problem to have. And the colder the colder it is outside, the more hot water we have, which is kind of a bizarre, great right? So, yeah, it's almost yeah, it's almost it's an, like an inverse cold. bizarre thing. Like the colder it gets, the more hot water we have because the more heat we need, so the more hot water we generate as a byproduct. And that's that's like the, the right. amazing thing. When I looked at the way you had that stove set up, like it's, a, it's function stacking uh, at, at just a perfect permaculture level. Like, because the more you yeah. need, the more you have, but yet it's a byproduct. It's not really the primary purpose. That stove's there to cook and heat the, heat the, the building. And the, the right. water just, like, right. there's way more heat than you could ever use you know, right. on the efficiency scale there, so you got to do something else with it. So pump some water through it. Actually, like you said, yeah. you don't even pump it. You just let it go. Like like energy, the 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 heat not only warms the water, it actually moves the water. 
Right, because the hot water is lighter than cold water, so it expands. And, you know, the whole idea of a thermosiphon or a convection loop, it's just, just like air in the room or air in the atmosphere. You know, the warm, the warm fluid, in this case water, is rising, and uh, the cold water drops. So it just it circulates, like, pretty rapidly, actually. I, I'd love to have, like, a clear pipe. You know, it'd have to be some weird glass pipe or something and, and dye the liquid and see how fast it's circulating, which I'm kind of cool. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not practical to figure that out, but it, it circulates pretty fast. So you can put your hand on the cold side and your hand on the hot side when it's not super hot. You can put your hand on it, and, you know, there's, like, a major difference in temperature. The delta T there is, like, usually it's about 15 degrees. You wow. know, So the wood stove is gaining 10 mm. to 15, 18 degrees as it passes through the stove. That's that's pretty damn impressive. So just on a, a yeah. side note here, you know, you were talking about how right now with the power being out, you run your generator a little bit and all. I know that for very good reasons you've stayed away from doing photovoltaic solar. Uh, you put some solar hot water heat on one of the buildings there, but you, you yeah. haven't done photovoltaic solar, and I, I get it. But what, going through this, do you think, you know, if I had a – a large battery bank sitting here and some panels up on the roof that this would really like, especially this time of year, keeping the freezers would be plenty of power. Because you got to run your what your light bulbs, your computer, and your freezers. That's all about you would have to run. Right, and the lights is so easy because I just have a couple Coleman lanterns and some white gas, which seems to keep for a long time, unlike gasoline. So lighting, and we have flashlights, and so the lighting seems super easy, but the freezer. The freezer and fridge are the biggest challenges. You know, at this time of year, the fridge, basically, it's just a convenience thing because we have a root cellar. We just have to walk down the driveway a little bit to go to it. But, yeah, the freezer is the big nut to crack, um, and that's really it uh, as far as daily needs. Um, but, yeah, you know, we're actually moving towards doing a photovoltaic array at our other site where we have a lot more room on the ground without, you know, shading out yeah. or having to to cut out really nice old plantings and that's one of the main reasons i haven't done it here sure and we can do a we can do a group net meter so i can still pay turn back all you know fully credit the use i have here because it's the same power company in vermont oh, I, don't know. I got it's you it's like it's group net metering so one one property can zero out you know multiple properties um and we have tons of room for solar there that makes so, sense but but it doesn't make me wish I had solar here right now because the amount of batteries that I know I would need um, to power a freezer and fridge is like, I don't want to maintain that many batteries. I've lived actually at a school, off-grid school in the Bahamas to help manage the facility there. And, you know, it was a school, so it was pretty big. We had like a 20-kilowatt system. But, um, you know, the amount of batteries that you need is, they've lived off grid houses too in Vermont. There's just so many batteries, and, you know, batteries are finicky. If you drop them, you know, even below 50%, you're starting to wear them, wear mm -hmm. them out. And, um, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I really don't want to store electricity in batteries. There's really not a good way. I'd love to say, ever come out with a hydrogen fuel cells, that sounds like a nice way to store electricity, but, you know, it's just so easy to store power in the form of, like, a water tank on the third floor to just feed the system, store heat in the form of wood, storing food is easy. So, you know, I feel like without storing electrons, we can pretty much get where we want to get, um, and then we just make electrons every now and then, you know, by firing up a generator. But 
the generator and, and it's the electricity is the only challenge to this whole situation. I mean, heat, food, water, no problem. Communication's pretty easy. But having a real electric need for like freezer um, and fridge is that's the weak link in you know my system and anyone else who's trying to, I think, actually be prepared um, and kind of light you know light living in terms of how much they they really need um, to, to be dependent upon. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I'd agree with that. We have a, a, a lot of refrigerator freezer just for all the product that we store for customers. And that's like, right. like either you do that or you you know get your customers salmonella and then you go out of business. So you got to do right. something. But yeah. Anyway, let's talk about heating the home. Like, so you're a wood guy. So you, would you say that that's the most? You know, what are the most resilient ways to heat a home in a cold climate? Well, if you have trees or you can grow trees, I've never seen a system that that beats um, a wood stove. You know, a straight up high efficiency wood stove, ideally it's a wood cook stove, which there's a handful of models now available in the U.S. that are efficient cook stoves. A lot of the old cook stoves most people know are the old, you know, Glen, they're like the old antique looking ones that are super drafty and you wouldn't keep coals for more than four to five hours with one of those. But now you can get cook stoves um, in the U.S. that can keep coals for a whole night, and uh, they do everything a normal wood stove does, but plus they have a huge cook surface, and they have a huge oven, or not huge, but a big enough oven to, to bake, to dry, whatever you want to do in there, and they can heat your hot water, and they heat your house. Um, I don't think you can beat it. I mean, if you had a really hot hot spring, like 140 water in the ground, hey, that's, that's ideal, but you know, where we are, we're about 2,000 miles from the nearest geothermal hot spring <laughs> in this part of the world, or maybe 1,500 miles. I wish we had hot springs, but we don't. Um, wood is just, you know, the best way to store solar energy and, and heat around here. It's totally resilient. It doesn't need any electricity. It never knows the grid is down. A little bit of processing. You know, we might put a few days into wood processing, Um in the winter, we cut the wood and haul it out of the wood, and then we try to have it stacked up. Where most people go wrong is they really think they can put their wood up in the summer or even the fall for that winter. And it's like wood, the trees don't work that way. They work because they can store water really, really well in their cells, and they don't dry out. They're very difficult to dry. You know, they're, they're, wood is difficult to dry. It takes a while, so... You need a whole growing season in this part of the world to dry firewood, even if it's split. Much longer if it's not split. So, you know, the, you really want you want to put up your wood in the winter for the following winter, ideally. And that's when we try to get it done, or at least by like April first, under cover. It's a good time to, to do the it's a good time to do the work too, because you can move it on the snow with you know basically sled. And right. all the leaves are off, so the slash is less of a pain in the ass, and slash is a pain in the ass when you're dealing with firewood. Oh, yeah, and also you're cutting, you know, if you do it, especially according to the moon, you can you can um, really cut it with the sap down. So before the sap rises, like when people make maple syrup around here, um, you know, any deciduous forest in the cool, the cold climates, the sap drops in the coldest time of year. So... Ideally, you cut it when that saps down, and then it dries even faster, and it's also lighter to handle. You're, you're hauling thousands of pounds less water out of the wood than you would if you cut it at a different time of year, and um, it's drying faster. And, you know, actually, that's also better lumber. That lumber is going to last longer. Um, 
as well because there's less sugar in it. So, yeah, and then we try to also haul it when the ground's frozen. So we just basically in the spring, if you do a good job and you hit the weather window right, you don't your logging roads don't look like you dragged anything across them, you know. Um, nothing like run it up, you know, mess because that's basically impossible to fix well. So, yeah, we, we do all the hauling. Yeah, winter is a great time for woodwork for sure. We'll sometimes end up still doing a few things in the spring, like stacking the wood in the spring, but um, we try to get it done before April 1st. Now, now I've been to your place, so I know you put quite a bit of thought into the proper storage of wood, and I, I see people, mm-hmm. I mean, no one really relies on it down here, to be fair. It's, it's more of, you know, they have a fire at Christmas time and Thanksgiving, and maybe right. if it gets really cold. So, you know, when it goes down to 55 degrees, you go outside, you go, someone fired up a fireplace. <laughs> you can smell it. It's that <laughs> it's that distinctive. So they don't really rely on it. So I, I don't want to beat on them up too much, but I, I drive around kind of the uh, – you know, I'm I'm in the middle of nowhere, but right next to somewhere. And I drive down the road a couple miles to the HOA land, and I drive around looking at all the McMansions, and everybody has a pile of wood between two trees. You know, maybe they laid something down to at least get it off the ground and just sitting out there in the open. And that that wood never leaves until it goes to the fireplace. And and there's issues there, no? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're in Colorado or, you know, certainly. If you're west of the Mississippi, um, in a lot of places, and not in the Pacific Northwest, you can you can reasonably dry wood outside, really, like in the open. You know, if you're in a place where farmers will leave hay bales out in the open, you can definitely don't have to cover your wood. Um, but where we are, um, you have to cover your wood or have a very kind of high airflow situation. And it also wants to be, you know, relatively sunny location too. And it's still going to take six dry, uh, warm months to dry. Um, but the biggest mistake around here is people cover their wood, but they cover it with a tarp. Or and the worst thing is like tarping it from ground to ground. You know, tarps on the ground on one side and down on the ground on the other. All you're doing is that's actually a perfect way to to to, to, to rot the wood. I mean, bowl turners do that to get fungi to take over the wood and then turn it on the lathe before it's, like, fully rotted when it's, like, really beautifully spalted. So, you know, you have to have airflow. So a tarp's hard to do because it's always blowing off and you can't have it just on the top. Scrap metal roofing or in a woodshed is great. I mean, people are always throwing away, like, rusty metal roofing, and if it has a drip here and there, it's still fine for covering firewood. And uh, that's my favorite way to do it. You know, around here, people in New England, you know, there's, tens of thousands of people that heat with wood fully that burn, you know, five to 20,000 pounds of wood every winter. Um, and most people aren't really drying it too carefully from, from what I can tell. And that just makes it harder to light and it makes you get a lot less heat out of it because you have to boil all the water to boil before you actually Yeah, I've I've been, you're sitting at a campfire and somebody throws a log in that's not seasoned right and you can hear it literally sizzling and watch water kind of coming out this. What I found here, and I think it is different by uh, climate, so I'm nowhere near as dry as, let's say, Colorado, but nowhere near as humid as you. Drying here works pretty good out and exposed, but once that wood's been dried, you want to get it undercover, you know, some sort of a woodshed or something, because our wet season is going to be the fall, and then you've got that dry wood just being drenched constantly in rain. And that doesn't help either because wood does take a long time to dry out, but 
Anybody that's ever had a loose hammer head and, and stuck it in a bucket for 10, 15 minutes knows it takes water up pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of funny, you know, theories about wood. I ran into a neighbor the other day, and he, was, he said, oh, you know, actually having the wood out in the open dries it faster because when it's rained on and then the sun hits it, it, like, swells and shrinks, and it dries faster when it's getting rained on every now and then. I said, really? <laughs> and, you know, then I realized I actually tested that theory because I left some out in a very sunny, exposed area in an old trailer I had. And that is just as asinine as it actually sounds. It's not the case at all. You don't want it to get rain. You don't want it to get rained on at all. You want it to just get sunny breezes. <laughs> that's that's over <laughs> so there with the people that say the best time to cut your grass is right after it rains. It's just I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. Like I have like we we don't use wood heat at all in our house. The only thing we do is like some campfires and stuff like that in the backyard for workshops and stuff. So I got wood piles laying everywhere. It's not like I'm doing this right or anything, but I'm not relying on it as a heat source either. It's just, you know, it's basically slash that comes off the trees around here. Right. Um, so what yeah. what are the biggest challenges with wood heat? Um, I mean, really the biggest one is it takes, you know, some days of work to get all the wood um processed and stacked up, I mean, unless you buy, you know, some people, a lot of people actually around here, most people buy the wood from cordwood dealers, and they, wood's actually pretty expensive here, but it's still cheaper than heating with diesel, with home heat oil, and um, it's a lot nicer, you know, of an experience, you know, have a wood stuff going than have to just radiate, uh, your radiators going, um, and so a lot of people buy wood, is about $200 a cord, and... Um, I think the big, yeah, the big challenge is, 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 is the stacking, keeping it dry, loading the stove. You know, that takes some time. For, for some people, that's a challenge. Some people really like it. I, I don't mind it, but it does take time. And then, um, yeah, I think, I think the other challenge is just, um, well, there's an expense, but it's cheaper than any other form of heat that people have, uh, at least in New England here, you know. Electric, electric heat is usually expensive. No one basically has electric anymore. That's all been ripped out. It's more. It's cheaper than oil. It's cheaper than we don't have much natural gas, and it's cheaper than it anyways. So it's you know it's a time commitment both to deal with the wood and then to um you know to keep the the fire going. But um you know I think a lot of times people go wrong in the drying, as I mentioned, and also. You know, there's a lot of people selling, like, crappy wood versus, you know, sugar maple or yellow birch or oak or beech um, versus, you know, red maple. Or no one's going to sell someone's softwood around here. That would be pretty low. But, um, you know, you don't want a whole pile of red maple. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember the movie Office Space? Where, where the guy, the guy uh, Peter asks his neighbor, he says, "Does anybody ever say to you when you come into work on Monday, somebody's got a case of the Mondays?" And he goes, "No, nah, man, no. Nah, I believe you get your ass kicked for something like that." When you said sell somebody softwood up there, that was the first thing that came to my mind was that line from that movie. Like, no, nah, no, nah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's funny because we get to be real snobs about it, and like, oh, there's like old Vermonters or old New Englanders all. Of throughout New England, Maine, New Hampshire. Like, oh, you can't burn softwood. You'll have a chimney fire burn your house down. It's like they've been burning only softwood in Scandinavia for 5,000 more years. Talk to an Alaskan. 
talk to an Alaskan. All they yeah. burn is spruce, you know. It's Oh yeah. And, but do you yeah. get better efficiency out of hardwood? Of course you do. But that's what you have. Right. Like it's a, do you have it's, that yeah. or not? It's, right. If you have it, you want the heaviest darn wood you can get your hands on, which is, you know, hickory, uh yellow birch is great up here, you know, where you have oak. It's hard to beat that or ironwood around here is awesome, but um yeah, I mean it's just it's a density thing and uh yeah, so it's it's, you know, we, the people that really are into it love it. And I, I can't imagine anything more resilient, um, you know, as far as running a system. But I'm just amazed more people don't do their whole, really power their whole system with a cook stove. I mean, even in the kind of preparedness world, I see folks, and we can chat about this if you want, but I, I see the weak link for a lot of people have like years of wood stacked up. Or excuse me, years of food put away. Yeah. But they still are relying on like some very kind of um dependent and unresilient form of heat and and hot water. And space heat and hot water are really important. I mean, hot water is, is no joke. If you have it, you're really happy you do. And obviously heating your house is even more important than that. Yeah, I think it also does vary by region. Like, so, I mean, I'm trying to skin some of this right now. Like, I can't stick a wood cook stove in my house. I will kill myself if I have a wood cook stove in my house. Even in December, it will be 100,000 degrees in my house. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so, but I've got to figure out, like, we're looking at different ways of using, like, rocket stove-like technology, use small amounts of wood to heat water quickly and things like that sort of like the on-demand yeah. version. So like we all have to skin this differently, but I agree with you, especially in these northern climates, not the same thing, but the same type of effect. I grew up in coal country, and until I think it was 86 at my grandmother's house, there was a coal stove in the kitchen. And I'll tell you what, that house was never cold in the winter. It was never cold in the winter. And, and there was a radiator that ran off of a coal furnace below. But that kicked on very seldom because that stove really warmed that house. And it wasn't like, oh, we got to fire it up. Like during the winter, it just ran. You know, you had to service it by taking ashes out. And I've never lived with a wood cook stove, but I can imagine it's probably quite similar in many ways and probably far better. I'm not a fan of burning coal, honestly. Sure, sure. Well, and I think in a... In a um in a really much more mild climate like you live and a lot of your listeners live in than, than where I am. And obviously I know some people live in northern Montana. It's even colder than here. But um, you just, if you want to have a wood-based setup, um, which I think is still a really good idea because there is wood in most of the country, um, you just will end up scaling down your stove as much as possible. And they make some pretty good, really small stoves. And having your water, if you want to get water from it, having your water jacket be a larger proportion of the stove, mm. of the firebox, than we want it up here. So the stove gets smaller, the, fire, the water jacket surface area gets bigger, and you're putting more and more of your BTUs of the proportion of heat you're making into the water because you just don't need much of the space heat. So, like... Our setup, let's say, puts about 25%, as far as I can tell, into the water. And 75% goes into the space of the BTUs it makes, which is about 35000 an hour is probably what our stove is. But you can get that up to where you can get – I don't know that you could get much more than half of it into water, but you could certainly 
get half, which would be good where you live. Yeah, and we've thought about doing something like, since we don't really need the space heat at all, putting it out in our shop, right. and then moving the water to the house from the shop wouldn't actually be difficult. And a surplus of yeah. hot water, gee, I guess I could heat my greenhouse. You know, right. that would be you, can always, you could always figure out something. Extra hot water is a great thing to have. Yeah, yeah. If nothing else, it yeah, can turn cold again and go... Go go irrigate something, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, so what? You'd agree not bed. What are the systems that are working best at your place for you? Well, I mean, you know, the the wood, the wood, do it, do everything wood stove that that we cook on, bake in, heats our water, heats our heats our space is is really a phenomenal piece of technology. It's, The most important piece of technology here, probably next thing on the list, would be like a screw gun and a chainsaw. Those three things are, you know, I wouldn't want to give up. Um, the the perennial food systems are really taking shape, and you know, we were maybe you saw some of my photos on Facebook of, of the food yields, the fruit and nuts we're getting off the tree crops now are really starting to be pretty impressive and just be like really awesome, like a. a solid amount of calories from black walnuts that we planted in year one and pears and apples and peaches went off this year but for the first time we couldn't keep up with the blueberry bushes um so that's all you know really taking hold which is you know took a while because we're on really poor clay soil um pretty steep slopes you know it's not farmland so those things took a lot of work to get going a lot of mulching a lot of care get the soil right And, you know, the veggie systems are kind of plateaued, you know. It's just a skill thing at, at, at this point of us trying to get better and better at growing more and more of our food with the veggies with as little amount of work as possible. Yeah, I was saying, how much count. time do you want to put into it is the, probably the bigger limit on anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and every season the weather and the pets are so different from season to season up here. So that kind of constantly throws a curveball. Like, we'll think, oh, we dialed in growing this crop, and it's like, Well, this year there's some bug that's eating that, and it's never eaten that in 10 years. And that, that this summer actually was great for trees, but terrible, for, very challenging for veggies. Or, or some guy uh, named Spirko whispers in your ear, get geese, and the geese eat all your, your squash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, that could happen. Yeah, Do but, you still have geese? So, yeah, yeah, we still have two geese, Thelma and Yiji, and they... They're great. You know, they have had some years where they lay really well, but in the last year, they, last two years, they've really, um, we've really seen their laying season become just confined to, um, the spring. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's great because the goose eggs are awesome, but, um, it's pretty brief. They do keep the ducks alive, though. I think their presence really helps deter our relatively light predator pressure. Yeah. But, Um, and they're, you know, they're nice guard animals in terms of their warning system. You know, I mean, anyone comes up, comes up to the property, they, they let us know, you know, they're super loud sentinels. But, um, I think, you know, just the way the whole system of the property is, is, has, is working in concert now is, is probably what's working best. But I mean, I think we can also chat about it, but I think also the value of a, of a well-designed house well insulated and gets solar energy and is just really durable and low maintenance um that just keeps that allows you to put your time into everything else because it's just um it's, it's something that's just kind of running on its own so the whole 
the built systems, you know, our barn, the shop, um, you know, our kind of small house, that all, that's all worked out very, very well. I've started to get into, you know, year 10 on a lot of the built infrastructure. And so starting to do some maintenance and realizing, wow, you know, I think with some care, this, these things are going to last, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of years as long as we're taking care of everything. That's awesome. That's awesome. What are some of your biggest challenges? I mean, time, you know, time's always one. If we want to go away, you know, having animals, you have two dogs in addition to a flock of birds. So that's always a, a challenge. You know, we'd like to go away probably a little more than we do sometimes, although we do love being here. If we didn't, you know, I wouldn't recommend this lifestyle. <laughs> But um, let's see. I mean, the veggies are constantly challenging. We're getting pretty good at it, but like this summer was a lot of past, so that's That's always an ever-present challenge. Um, probably just managing vegetation. I mean, keeping a, a lot of the property from becoming a jungle of vegetation that we don't want mm -hmm. to allow the oaks and walnuts and chestnuts and apples and pears and some other stuff to own the canopy and keep and access the sunshine instead of the poplar and the red maple and birch and willow, just, you know, the jungleification of, <laughs> of land, I think is the constant work, you know, in, in this part of the world anyway, but keeping all that at bay. So our, our, the stuff that's going to give us the yields we want, um, and also benefit the ecosystem too. A lot of wildlife values are going to take hold and start, you know, like I've got 30 nice white oak, red oak walnuts that are, going to be huge uh, when they get mature uh, for the ecosystem and for people, but, um, you know, without beating back the the pioneer vegetation around it, um, you know, they're not going to do anything. So that, that, so that's continuous work every year. Been, do, you guys, work, but, do you guys still right. manage a lot of your land with animals? I know when I was up there, you were using sheep, but it sounded like they were going to go away at that point. Uh, yeah. How, how are you handling yeah, we, all the open space right now? Yeah, I, I flail mow once or twice a year, um, and I use a scythe, and I use a machete, and I use an axe, and I use a chainsaw. So depending on the size of everything, I mean, it's now getting to the point where I'm cutting, like, black locusts down with chainsaws that I planted to make sure that black locust isn't fully shading out, you know, a, bur a white bur oak that I planted. Hmm. Um And so that gets to be a bit of work because, um, and we're harvesting it. You know, it's a great yield to have a black locust. But, um, you know, like you said, slash is a pain in the butt to deal with. I hate dealing with slash, you know, like branch wood. Yeah. So you drop a tree, dealing with the, the trunk is great. That's no, no big problem. But all the branches, you know, is a lot of work. So clearing, clearing vegetation, keeping vegetation down. Yeah, that's. Uh, we were not great, we're not grazing um, sheep anymore. We haven't grazed sheep in a few years because it was too much work to keep them off the trees. You know, they'd clear the vegetation really well, but including the vegetation we want to grow. So we had to stop the sheep for at least, I think, about four to five years to give the tree crops that we wanted to establish, especially in zone, in the outer zones, like two, three. Sure. Maybe a little four. Kind of that was where I was going to go next. Like as those those trees actually mature to a point where they become immune to a sheep, 
do, do sheep right. or some other ruminant come back then to help control that that secondary oh, yeah. growth? Okay. Yeah, that would be ideal. Would be you know in another couple years we could go back to sheep or cows. Like beef cattle would be really great, except a lot of our land is pretty wet, so they hug it up pretty good. Um, but yeah, going back to, to the grazing once the trees you want to access the canopy are, you know, two, three inch diameter. Um, and let's say solid eight to 15 feet tall, depending on what animal. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously goats don't care. I've seen goats kill, you know, a 20 inch maple, you know, but, um, they, they, they kill a 50 foot tall tree if they, if you leave them around it for long enough. But, I've you seen know, them. I've, I've seen them do that, but I've also seen them take like a tree that's like twenty foot tall, but it's still young. It's like a you know a big tall like a like an overgrown sapling basically, and walk up it, and they'll walk wow. up until their weight bends it over, and they'll get three or four goats on it. They'll bend it down and they'll browse the top off of it. It's, oh yeah. They're, they're <laughs> I guess and, be, and beef cattle can you know they'll they'll and sheep will do it at smaller trees, but cows can walk a tree down like. You know, they'll just, like, put it between their legs yeah. and front legs and walk, and they'll just bend over to get the browse. Yeah. Um, so they have to be pretty sizable, obviously, depending on how you manage them. Like, on our larger site, which is about 40 minutes away, we've been managing um, about uh, 12 cows in a silvopasture system, you know, with thousands of trees planted uh, in, in hedgerows. And we've been experimenting with grazing them just in the alleys, but also grazing them through those hedgerows. And it's only in year four, so the trees aren't that big. But, um, you know, if you move them enough, just say, the, yeah. the damage can be pretty minimal. Yeah, they go through quick, and there's there's so many things they prefer over, let's say, the top of an apple tree on that first pass that you can right, kind of push exactly. them through, and they'll open it up. But if you leave them there, yeah, once once the, the ice cream's gone, they'll dig into, you know, the peas, oh, I guess. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that can be, you know, that can be like, you know, you left them one morning too long or yeah. even just a couple hours and yeah. you realize, okay, and then and you start to get a feel for it and realize, you know what, we got to move them now because the next couple hours they're going to start to hit this stuff. you got to get them to, like, the point where, like, I think it'll last to here, so I'm going to pull back to you know a four-hour, five-hour buffer against where I think I can get away with, or maybe even a one-day buffer, and say it's good enough. Get them out of there. Right. Yeah. And and a little bit of browsing at the end of the world. I mean, some stuff they don't want. That they don't really touch my oaks too much. They definitely love apples and love pears. <laughs> um, but but a lot of and even the chestnuts they leave alone to some extent. And but um. Yeah, you know, the whole phasing, uh, how to phase in the silvo pasture is, is probably been the uh, biggest overarching challenge for us, um, is, is combining animals and, um, and plants. And that's why, you know, you don't see that. You know, if someone's an animal farmer, they don't grow trees generally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. I've always wondered, you know, getting into this, it's like, wow, look at all these cow farmers, dairy farmers with tons of sunny land. Why aren't they planting any trees? And it's like, of course, they're not planting any trees because they're just pushed. They're to their management capacity, and they can't. It's the last thing they're going to do with. Well, and what I've trees. seen, I've seen done successfully is like so. What, what Mark Shepard's done, where he grows all these locust trees, and then they become fence posts, living fence posts, and he tacks an insulator on them, and basically they can graze right up to the tree line, but they can't get into it. That that hot wire is there to you know 
she puts his nose on a hot wire once or twice and doesn't want to do that anymore. You know, and that right. works too. But I, I'm not. I, I mean, my experience with sheep was your place. I looked at you, the day I got there. You were dealing with fly strike, and I'm like, no sheep for me. <laughs> I'm like, no sheep for me, man. And you're like, dude, it was the worst day ever. Do not judge sheep on that one day. I'm like, nope, no sheep for me. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was definitely still. The, that was still the worst day ever. But there, there were a lot of work. I mean, we put a lot of work into those sheep for a few years, and. I think it was, it was time, you know, it was investment in the soil. And yeah. It really, the property really benefited um, the soil, the, 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 the kind of lushness of everything. But it was at, it was, it was at the expense of, you know, a lot of effort of moving electronetting, you know, yeah. constantly. I remember, was, I think what yeah, you said to me was something to the effect when they were about ready to go, that they've done some good work. But now it's time for them to go away. Like they, we've we've done the work we can do with them. You know what I've noticed too. Like you're talking about trees being attacked. Freaking geese, and it's something new. It's not necessarily a tree. So like I have my geese, and they'll walk by. You know, tons of young trees every day. But that tree's been there since they were a gosling. They know that tree. You have like a, you lose a tree or something. You pop one into a spot, or you just plant a new one out in a certain area, and it's new. They freaking twerk out on it. And they'll eat the eat it right down to the cambium all the way around and kill it. And it's like it's, wow. not, it's not like they're eating it to eat it. It's like they're freaking angry at it because it's it's new. It wasn't there before, right. and it's disturbed right. their place. So like I'm gonna say if anybody's gonna keep you know like you got a couple of geese, so maybe it's not as big a deal. But and yet your system was maybe more mature too when you put them into it. But if you're gonna have more than a couple of geese and you're gonna be planting trees, some you know some wraps or tree tubes or something. Because I, I don't know, it's, it's literally like a hatred and a rage that this thing dare be <laughs> there, right? And they'll just hammer it. I've, and they've hammered a lot of like autumn olive and stuff like that, and that's no big deal. And it's actually created yeah. some cool things where like they hammered it, but it stayed alive, and it created this kind of gnarled, twisted sculpture. Uh, but if it was a you know if it was a thirty or forty dollar fruit tree, I wouldn't be so entertained, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's surprising to hear because that's one thing we've never. We once raised 50 geese um, uh -huh. in a summer and and actually grazed them right through our baby trees in our larger site, civil pasture. And they, it was I was amazed how little they would touch. The, I mean, they wouldn't even touch the leaves. But I, I think you're right. When something's new, new or if the conditions are just just wrong for them, they could you know go at it. It's when something's new, man. It's like you plant that new thing and it's like that wasn't there before. And they're very observant. Right. They're smart birds, you know. Um, oh yeah. That you've kind of phased out the sheep. Are there other things maybe that you're starting to phase out or looking to phase out soon and, and kind of transition to different methodologies or whatever or different techniques? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. Not much. Well, besides sheep, we you know we grew rice for about four to five years, and that experiment we're not carrying on anymore. It was very worthwhile. I mean, we learned how to grow rice, and it's an amazing crop. Um, the yield, even in this climate, can be great. But um, the birds discovered it, I think, no. like two years before we were done with it. And once the birds discovered it, we'd have to go to netting and a combo of, like, sound and human presence and, like, all sorts of, you know, shenanigans, like things that spin around and are shiny and work for, like, a week, and then the birds aren't that dumb, so they realize it's not a threat. Um And so that, in combination with having to start the rice early, and you have to start them in a greenhouse because the season's so short here, 
was just it just put it over the threshold of like okay it's enough work that we're glad we know how to do it if we want to grow it in the future or if the climate you know if the if the season gets longer over time or people breed a shorter season rice you know we'll go back to it but the threshold and the amount of work input for what we're getting out of it um just became something we weren't interested in pursuing but you know that was that was a neat process, and now we have these great terraces from it. Um, we left some of them as, as patties that are just awesome stormwater detention basins, and great they're great for our bird for the waterfowl, of course. Nothing better than a patty. Um, and then two of them, we just flopped the outer ridge in, and it just became a nice vegetable garden terrace. Oh, that's perennial, great! And perennial um, flower terrace. We're doing tons. One thing we're phasing in a lot, Jack that I really took me too many years to get onto. It probably took me about five years before I really went at it big is the herbaceous perennial flowers. Okay. You know, um, lobelia, bee balm, echinacea, coreopsis, thermopsis, you know, and the, the whole host of Jerusalem artichoke, you know, all of the different herbaceous plants that are perennial herbaceous mostly that are especially flowering. And getting it back into bees, I think, has been what helped me realize there is so much endless space for these herbaceous perennial flowers and they're truly the only no work thing here after establishment i mean it's truly you plant them mulch them like get them above the sod usually you want to kill the sod first ideally or do a really good like sheet mulch and then it's literally that's it i mean they'll just they come back every year you know, they'll come back for as long as they have sun, they'll come back for hundreds of years. And, the, and those du your ducks don't hammer those things? No, no. I mean, you know, our flock is small. So That's what I think it is, point, yeah. Yeah, at some point with the birds, you know, with any animal, I feel like you get to a certain number and they just start just hammering everything. And, you know, we only have two geese, three ducks, one retired chicken, and we're not planning to get any more chickens because they scratch, and we don't yeah. want scratching at yeah. with all our mulch things. But, um, you know, it's just they can't really, the, the amount of impact that they have. Um, yeah, I, I got mean, they mow the They mow the tightest lawn in the summer, and then, yeah, they don't have to, they don't bother um, any of those things. And those are basically perennials are just, just awesome. Um, you know, we buy them plug form for about 60 cents a plug. And um, there's wholesale nurseries, and you can go in with people because you got you got to buy 50 to get the discount. So you split them with friends because there's not many of them you want like 50 of one species. Sure. It's more like I want five, ten of like 20 species. So we split split these flats with friends, and um, man, we, there were I don't think it'll be another couple of years, and we've been at it for about five years now, just plugging these in in the spring, and then just having epic bee butterfly medicine also some of them are straight up edible for us oh sure gardens everywhere so the the ones that you left as patties that you still have water in now they're they it's not a very deep system it's pretty shallow yeah um, i guess some only to like eight inches so you got the ducks there you don't have that many ducks though so they go go in there and they can play around have you tried to think of anything that would grow in there as the rice did, I mean, I'm having tremendous yeah. results with, like, water chestnut, but I don't know if that works in your climate. Um, yeah, I haven't. You know, it's a very good question, and I've wanted to to figure that out. Like, what? all right, what's our perennial version of the rice that can grow in the patty? And 
I just probably, probably haven't had the bandwidth to really focus on yeah. answering that question. I get busy with other stuff, but I also haven't found it. I mean, I've looked into it enough, a little bit, and not come up with much that I kind of keep forgetting to go back to that question. But, no, I haven't really put anything in those patties. I've really let it become like little wetlands and just let it absorb storm events and let the ducks fish out worms and get all sorts of food in it and the geese and the geese. But yeah, we're not actively cropping those. Um, partly too, because honestly, I'm just like busy enough with everything else that we have going. I'm like, okay, great. I don't need to like even do anything here actively, but I could send you a couple dozen chromes. I could send you a couple dozen chromes this year. You can stick them in there and just yeah. do nothing and see. Yeah, I, would, I would love to for sure. I'd love to try that. I mean, I'm, I'm container growing them, and I have these like uh, like one foot by two foot boxes, and they're in my ponds that I like my above ground ponds I built. And you know, when uh -huh. it when it all dies back in the winter, and I turn it upside down, it's like half the box is water chestnuts. Wow. Like, I, like I don't know where cool. the dirt, I don't know where the soil goes. Like you're literally like, yeah. well, how did it all fit in here? I don't understand. And so, I mean, I don't know if they'll make it through your winter, but if they do, if they're you know. They, they are very quick producers, but I don't know that they're quick enough on. But I mean, it's you know, it's mail post to you for a couple of bucks, and you can try it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'd love to try it. I love water chestnuts; they're great. We had a great couple years for growing, not as a food crop, but for as a biomass crop and a food for the birds. Uh, Azola in the pond. Oh yeah, they man, they just cleaned up our middle pond and went crazy you know the water nitrogen fixing water fern and we just skimmed them and uh threw them in the compost and mulched with them but then i think they like did all the kind of sopping up of whatever excess nutrients they grab up and now they like this summer they and last summer too the zola wouldn't really grow it just hang around the sides of the ponds and it didn't want to populate the pond like whatever it needed it, it like mopped up it's a cool Well, yeah, yeah, that's one of those. That just like seemed like such an opportunity because, like, as soon as you said you took a rice away, I'm like, well, what are you going to do with that? Um, yeah, you, like you said, yeah. flip it over, and all of a sudden you've got a terrace. But the stuff you still got water. It'd be cool to see what else you could do with it. Um, yeah. On that, like, what are your top picks for what to grow in your climate? I mean, I get emails from people sometimes. They're like, Jack, I live in Zone 9A, and I get 96 inches of rain a year, and I don't know what to grow. And it's like, shut up. You can grow whatever you want. You know, uh, your your climate has a legitimate limitation with short growing season, very cold winters, um, those types of things, especially with perennials, because you know you can't jumpstart a perennial once it's in the ground. It's it's got to cope to the environment that it's in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are what are my topics like in this climate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well. From just a raw utility standpoint, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily, this isn't in order, but for some reason I'm thinking of it because we were just talking about, or I was talking about a gracious perennial, but Jerusalem artichoke mm -hmm. is, I, I joke with our students, like the Jerusalem artichoke and our clients, Jerusalem artichoke and a 22 rifle, as long as you have some, some ammo, and you're going to feed yourself, you know, pretty reliably. Like, they're basically a perennial potato. Um Are they as tasty as a potato? Can you cook them in as many ways as a potato? Maybe not, but um, you can make them pretty good. And we actually lacto-fermented them this year, you know, made them like sauerkraut, and they're really tasty. Um, but they're just utterly reliable. I mean, it's like a staple crop. Tr 
truly a staple crop that you can just plant one time and grow in crappy soil. Like we grow them on the side of our driveway, literally like in gravel fill. They just crank every year. We let the duck yard kind of water. We've managed to go that way. So it fertilizes them. Um, that's a winner. Hard to beat. Great hedge. Um, apples here in, in New England, especially Northern New England. If you're going to plant one fruit tree, I tell everyone we work with, make it an apple first. Pears are pretty good too. But nothing really comes close to how fast and how prolific an apple can be. Um, it's very long-lived. Um, probably pears would be the next fruit, large fruit. And then I'd say a, you know, at least a berry or two because we're in just great climate for growing berries. You know, Large fruits are tough here with all of our fungi and kind of humidity and wetness and lack of drying in the summer. Um, but berries thrive, so take your pick. I mean... We're in a berry, like we, berries and greens, you know, salad greens. We can just, we're in a, a five-star climate for, like, blackberry, blueberry, seaberry, we love. Those be, you know, those be on the list. Um, and then, oh, man, I, I'd say, I mean, those are all plants, you know. Winecap strafaria might be a fungi to throw in there, although they tend to phase out after a few years. Not a food plant, but comfrey. You know, comfrey has so many roles in the system. Um, and then maybe throw a vegetable in there. Probably got to be the the old potato. You know, just a such a standby um, for this climate. But we're having one of our our surprises lately in the last handful of years has been Asian pear. Totally really hardy to this climate. <laughs> super early bearing. Really vigorous. I wish I planted more of those, and I I am planting more now. Um, I know you just asked for five, but I'm no, no, that's great. No, like here's what I'm thinking is amazing, right? So like, it, it would be difficult to find two climates more different than yours and, and mine. One of my go tos, right. Jerusalem artichoke. So freezing cold, blazing hot, they grow. Shitty soil, good soil, they grow. Uh, and then when you say Asian pear, that shocks me because. I've had a really hard time getting my fruit trees established here, and, and there's you know, a litany of reasons why, but some of the fastest producing and best producing fruit trees, in addition to jujube, which probably would not work because it's like a zone six thing, but it's been the Asian pears. And we've had Asian mm -hmm. pears. We put them in, you know, we're talking potted trees from Lowe's, and we put them in, and they fruit the second season. And it's a small tree, wow. and there's 20 pears on it. And Yeah, they're very precocious. God, they're fantastic eating, too. Like... I don't know what it is, but I've never been able to buy one. And, you know, homegrown fruit's always better. But I've never bought an Asian pear that even tastes like an Asian pear off a tree to me. Oh, it's yeah. so night and day. And then on the berries, I think about the only berry you mentioned that we have not had any success with is uh, sea berry. I just haven't been able to. Mm. And I think it's more a function of alkaline soil than it is a function of the overall climate. It's just we're very alkaline. Yeah. And I think it just hates it. That's blueberries. Yeah, I would think the climate, the, the, the actual temperature, you know, the climate itself is it fine. Yeah, but the soil, I don't think, yeah, maybe they don't like alkalinity at all. Blueberries, you put them in the ground, they look beautiful until midsummer, and then they look like somebody dumped acid on them. And I just think they can't, wow. handle, they can't handle the... But you put them in a, a container and you balance the soil to the acid side and you grow all the blueberries you want. I think, you, I think it was Lee Reich that said huh. you could you grow, probably grow, grow a blueberry anywhere in the country. Wow. Yeah, they're pretty adaptable. 
One, two, two plants I should put on the list are Nanking cherry. I don't mm. know if you tried that down there, but they're a winner here. Um, it's a like a bush cherry, but um, um, Prunus hepatica, I believe they are. Um, there's a lot of different bush cherries that we've tried, like the name selected varieties, like Jan and Joy, that haven't done anything for us. But the um, the Nanking bush cherry it's just been a raging awesome plant and they're also the best size for a plant in zone one i think for perennial they're like big enough you can basically reach the whole plant but they're like you know fully they're full size so that they give like a nice um you know visual kind of screen and they define space and they take up a little bit of space and awesome tasty tasty fruit on them i know mark shepherd's big on them too he harvests them a lot Ours phased out after, like, five years, and I think we needed to do some more regeneration, like rejuvenation pruning on them, but we're putting those in more and more. They're amazing. Beautiful white flower in the spring. And then longer-term crop, but we're really starting to eat a lot of it now. It's black walnut. Mm. And they are, I mean, I'm sure they just grow like weeds, maybe in your neck of the woods. I know down in Missouri they do, but they're just amazing food, so good fresh. You know, hundred plus year. We're just crop. outside of the edge. Over. Like in Arkansas, they grow like weeds, and down here, they just they just don't. I mean, you get to here, uh, and you're looking at pecan, like is like the number one nut overstory tree in this this climate is pecan, and they can uh, handle well, the pecan, alkalinity and all that. Pecan's not a bad. We've tried to grow pecans, but man, I mean, I consider the pecan like the queen of nuts in a lot of ways. That's pretty awesome. You can grow those. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned the the Nanking. I've I have tried those at your urging. I've got several that established into really nice plants, but they don't produce for me. They just they just sit there. They get oh, beautiful flowers, and I'll get like I'll get like two cherries on them, and then the, the ducks will eat them before they're ripe. Um, the the bush cherry uh-huh. that's worked for me. Is Hansen's bush cherry, which is actually a sand plum, and that oh, yeah. has performed. And I, I did, it was a gamble because, like, it was developed in the Dakotas. So again, you're talking very cold climates. That has done fantastic, and one of them will produce quartz and quartz of them. They're not like the Nankings. I've eaten those out of hand, and they are sweet always. They're just mm. amazing. The Hansens are a little bit more tart and a little bit astringent. But jerry, mm-hmm. jellies or jams or meads or wines, I mean, they're just fantastic yeah. for it. And you get, I mean, it's amazing how much one tree produces. Like the whole limb, you can just like hold a yeah. bucket under it and run your hand up it, and they just fall into the bucket. There's So I'm still hoping on the yeah. Nanking, but I just I haven't got any production. I think i got like two, and I've got a couple tree cherries that are supposed to be southern varieties, and I've gotten a, you know, a handful, but I haven't had yeah. any cherry luck. You're in good cherry country. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The other, you know, anything that's anything that's the size of like a large berry or a very small tree. I mean, everyone who wants to grow food and as as a goal should really, you know, all of our homework is to figure out what what plants in those in that size category can we really grow well where we are because that size can just be so productive for like a garden farm, you know, small farm scale uh, type of setting, you know, homestead setting. It's just those sizes are just a beautiful thing. Black currants too. I mean, black currants are. I've actually now put them higher on the list than seaberry as far as reliability. I, I had seaberry as, as, as like the most reliable berry crop, mm-hmm. but then we have one year that they didn't do much. The black currants have been every single year now for getting on ten years, huge yields, 
super tasty to get better the more you eat and and they're and they'll grow and like whatever they're very like vigorous growers they want to live um that's what you want is a plant that wants to live that's always a, a good thing <laughs> when i feel like a plant doesn't want to live i'm like you don't get planted anymore i you know if you yeah. if i have to make you survive you're in the wrong place i, I i'm trying to and i you know i even tried to do yeah. um citrus here I did uh, some Arctic Frost uh, Satsumas, and they made it through one winter, and I was all proud of myself. And then last year, we got three days in a row where the highest temperature was 14 degrees, and they died. And I, uh, took, I took a small chainsaw and cut them off at the bottom, left the roots in the ground for you know organic matter, and said, I'm not doing, yeah. I'm not doing that anymore. That's, that's it. Uh, I don't care if Sepp yeah. Holzer grew a lemon in the middle of the Alps. I'm not Sepp Holzer, and... I, you know, I'm not going to spend my life, you know, trying to build one solar catcher to pay homage to a single tree. I want stuff that that lives, you know. Right. Um, yeah, there's plenty of plants in, in all in every climate that just don't want to do it. You got to figure <laughs> out what they are. So, so, what are you most excited about right now, Ben? Oh, I mean, the bees. I've been getting way into the bee thing in the last few years after a couple unsuccessful attempts, like maybe like five and six seven years ago and they kind of put it down for a while and then I kind of just got back into it and tried to finally got over the hump of like reading and enough about it and listening to enough people and podcasts about it and maybe watching some YouTube videos about it enough where I feel like I finally have a little bit of a sense of like what they may want that I we and we had a really mild winter two winters ago We had it one colony over winter, split them into a few, had those over winter, and now we're, you know, we got up to 10 colonies this summer, and I've been really, really into it, and just amazed how much, um, how much they produce, how high quality, um, you know, their, their products are, you know, the, the, the whole comb honey, how amazing it is, and, um, so I've been getting way into that, and it's like super challenging. I mean, I feel like I'll be like an intermediate at best if I do it for another 30 years. Like, I feel like I'll never, it's not like veggie growing. Like, I'll never be that good at it because it's just so, such a steep learning curve. And the guys But, that are, they almost seem like supernatural. Like my bee mentor, Jason, he'll come out here to my hives and he's out there with no gloves on and the bees are all clustered up in the heat. And he'll pick up bees with his bare hands and move them. And it's like, wow, I don't understand. And they, they go into almost some kind of a, Like, like, it was almost like a trance-like state, the, the guys that do it every yeah. day. And the bees just don't – it's not like they never get stung, but in general, the bees just don't even act like they exist. You know, like if, yeah. you, if you put a stick out and a bee climbed on it, it's not going to bite the stick. And they act like, you know – and I, I've gotten pretty confident with right. them, but I can't even begin to – You know, I at times actually think, yeah. like, is it really even the right thing for me to have here right now? And I sometimes I feel like it's not. Like, Yeah. It's, it's, I, and I'm, I'm by no means, like, you know, that connected with them. And I feel like I might never be, but I feel like it's worth exploring. And there's just, like, so much there, so much um, kind of mystery and, and so much that's happening, you know, with, sure. with that, that, that organism. It's just amazing. So I'm trying to, and I come at it from, like, a carpenter because I'm like, I can make these guys a really good house, you know, because I like working <laughs> with wood. So I feel like the, the fact that it's like a built, you know, it's this home, you know, make a home for this wild creature and then try to husband this, like, basically wild animal. I mean, it's, it's unlike any other farming system. Like, it's not, they're not domesticated. I don't think of them as domesticated. They're not. I guess they are 
considered domestic game. Yeah, but they're totally wild. Yeah. And um, but they we can give them homes and they stick around and they do amazing things. I mean, what else can you farm that flies two miles off your property and brings back value to your property? <laughs> You know, I, I can only come up with one creature that even competes, and it doesn't really compete with this. It's totally different, but that, that, that fits that model would be pigeons. Pigeons right, would right. be the only thing that like self forages and goes out, and like it could leave any time it wants to, but it comes back, and yeah, yeah. Cause, because you gave it a house. Yeah, and then I mean, and then the yeah, it's amazing, like what a flying animal could do, and then and then the fact that the bees, you know, just and spend all late summer evaporating all the water and distill this value, solar energy and value into, um, you know, a material that lasts, like, forever, like, completely non-perishable. It's just, uh, it's amazing. So I've been totally getting into that, and it's also super challenging here. I mean, most people lose, I guess, 30 to 50% of their hive every winter. So it's like, it's also like, it's an, it, it keeps you interested because it's, like, really... The threat of like losing all your bees is ever present. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, so it's engaging. The biggest challenge lately, probably to answer your other question, just to go back to that for a second, that I mentioned is the, our greenhouse. We have a really nice high performance dug in greenhouse and the pest challenges of that this summer, uh, were significant. We're like kind of stunning and we're like, wow, we really, we might let this, it's kind of six years in now in this greenhouse. We might let it freeze this winter, like, hardcore freeze like open the door on like a five degree night and just be like all right you guys are all dying of frost and you'll <laughs> kill our, our hardy green you know let everything die in there our hardy greens will die too but you know so what <laughs> it's like a reset because it, it, it's an artificial yeah. environment for your pets they're able to you know overwinter at way higher levels yeah. than and, and pests oh, that probably yeah. can't overwinter You know, your, your invasive oh, yeah. pests. We, we, we were able to manage it. I mean, it's always something you're going to get. And in, in, in most any climate in greenhouse, we had aphids, you know, the whole time. But we can manage them with, like, neem oil. But, yeah, come this summer, slugs and aphids. So the aphids were, like, relentless. And, you know, we don't want to – at some point, you're like, okay, I, I can't just keep neeming this. Like, something else. I have to take a different approach. So that's been an interesting experience this summer. It's like, all right, kind of got to reset the greenhouse probably. Well, cool, man. Uh, I appreciate you being with us here today. Can you tell us a little bit? I, I think we kind of hit parts of it, but you had mentioned in the notes that you had a really bang-up year this year on, on Harvest in year 14 on, on your site. Can you kind of give us an overview of that yeah. before we uh, part ways? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, just the, the fact that the walnuts really, their second year of bearing for the walnuts, and they just came on so strong. I was pretty stunned to see, like, you know, I'd always been someone like, knowing okay we've got to invest in nut trees like nut trees are like the background engine of the system they're just going to drive the system like fat and protein free falling from the sky you don't have to feed it's like a, a cow you don't have to feed basically <laughs> and um and they they really you know i had to i kind of had faith in that but then seeing the second year walnut yield this year was just Stunning. I mean, they, it took us 10 years to get our first walnuts because they're in a really rough place. You can definitely get them faster than that in a good spot. We have on the north side of the house in like fill dirt, you know, from the house excavation. And so last year, probably year 10 was first um, yield, and we got maybe like 50 nuts, just enough to want to realize they're really good and propagate them like a seed crop, second generation. And then this year it went from like 
it went from zero to 50 to like this year was like maybe 400 nuts or five, you know, the, the multiplier that's happening with them is big. And so we got like buckets of walnuts and, um, yeah, the peaches were huge this year. That's kind of a bonus crop because I feel like, you know, you're not going to really live on peaches even for a couple of days, but it's a super nice bonus of flavor and, and, you know, and vitamins to have, um, Apple, huge apple year. Our pears are really starting to grow off. We're really in like only year five to eight for a lot of our pears, and they take a while. They say pears for your heirs. You know, they live a long time. Um, those started to hit pretty hard. And I think between those three tree crops, you know, was some of the most excitement we had in terms of like seeing the system really reach a, another level of maturity. Real quick, where are yeah. you on things with your uh, black locusts? Like, uh, I know you had them in the ground for a long time. They were pretty impressive yeah. when I was there like six years ago, I guess now. Um, you know, is growing them as, you know, a, a, a pollard or a coppicing tree crop? Yeah, they're now, you know, 30, 25 to 45 feet tall. Wow. Um, and they're, they're forming the whole edges of the, the west, north, and east edge of the property, we planted them on like five, two to five foot centers, kind of just about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them around the property. So that's just now a wall of flowers in June. So the, for the bees, it's kind of neat. Like one of the reasons I think the bees are doing well and it came back to them is like all of the stuff we had planted finally caught up with itself and started to flower. No, no, you know, not black locust being probably the top of the list for that and um so they're just they're raging i'm starting to cut them like i said before to keep some sunlight hitting some of the oaks that i've tucked in on like the south sides of them and then we're just getting i harvested my first trunks that i'm drying for bow for making bows like bow and arrow bows out of and then we're moving we're getting towards fence posts with some of them we're about, they're about at fence post size, most of them. And then, you know, another five years will start to be at like early firewood size. And, um, also laying a few lines of them, laying them as hedges. So actually like dropping them and laying like a British style woven hedge. And we started to do that. Now we'll be in our third year of doing that this spring or late winter. Very cool, man. Uh, I mean, this is all awesome stuff. That's, you know, that's why we like having you on the show. That's why we love having you. As an expert council yeah. member, and, and and I appreciate you being with us today. Also, I'm sorry it took us so long to get you on the air after you fill out the form. I mean, I think you know about my giant snafu with like six months worth of interviews sitting in a box that I couldn't find. Oh yeah, no, no, no worries. I mean, November is this is what we call a stick season in New England. It's it's when we can kind of finally sit back and load the stove and, and tend to all the stuff we haven't gotten to. So it's good timing on my end. Awesome, man. Well, again, I appreciate you being with us today, Ben. Thank you, Jack. And, uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks a lot. Well, that was a great interview, and I always love having Ben Falk on the air with me. It's like talking to an old friend because, well, that's what he is. And uh, we share so many common interests and are trying to do so many similar things in very, very different climates. And uh, But it's, it's fun to actually talk about and realize some of the things overlap. And uh, what works well there actually works well here at some you know, not so much. 
Anyway, as we've wrapped up today, I want to remind you guys again, one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast is simply to do uh, your online shopping through tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to buy something online, just cruise on over to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and you'll see all of my reviews on Amazon. You'll also see a link that will take you straight to Amazon to see the deals of the day. And from there, you can do your shopping and buy what you were going to buy anyway. And no matter what happens, you help support the Survival Podcast when you do that because we're an affiliate for Amazon and referred you to the site. Um, you can learn more about all of the stuff we review, though, at TSPAS as well. And today's item of the day is made by FirmTech. It's the mini auto siphon with tubing. It's for you brewers out there. And uh, I kind of started a, a, a big thing with small-scale cider and mead making about two years ago. And uh, making one gallon at a time, quick batches, batches that finish up in 30 to 45 days. And when I started doing that, I realized that I wanted something to get that, you know, to transfer from one container to another. And my big giant siphon was just kind of stupid for that. And, and just about any other way of doing it was dumb. And I found this little mini auto siphon. It works great. You put it in there. You hook the hose up to it. You stick it to the vessel that you're trans uh, transferring to. You make sure one's a little higher than the other. You pump it a time or two, and boom, it, it just works. And it works every time. I love this little product. It's very, very affordable. Uh, coming in at about 12 bucks. And trust me, when you were trying to make us, you know, trying to siphon stuff from one gallon container to another one gallon container, if you didn't have one of these and someone offered one to you for 12 bucks, you'd buy it. Again, the FirmTech Mini Siphon comes with six feet of tubing and a clamp. Works really great. And you can find it at T-Spaz. You can find it at thesurvivalpodcast.com. It'll be right under today's episode. And you can always help the Survival Podcast by doing what? Your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's all you got to do. Anyway, next up, let's talk about the song of the day today. I've been really looking forward to today's song of the day. It's the last song on the Bad Out of Hell album, which we've been doing the last two weeks, the seven songs of the Bad Out of Hell album, to commemorate 40 years since Bad Out of Hell was released. I have always loved this song. It's called For Crying Out Loud, You Know I Love You. I don't think there's a song, including I Would Do Anything for Love. I, I don't think there is a song that really showcased Meatloaf's ability with vocals as much as this one. It is incredible. And there are parts of this song that just really cut to the heart of everything. Um, let me give you some of my favorite lines out of this song. It's really toward the end, like on the last, last, last stanzas. For taking in rain when I'm feeling so dry. For giving me the answers when I'm asking you why. My oh my, for that I thank you. For taking in the sun when I'm feeling so cold. For giving me a child when my body is old. Don't you know for that I need you. For coming to my room when you know I'm alone for finding me a highway and for driving me home. For that, I serve you. For pulling me away when I'm starting to fall, for revving me up when I'm starting to stall. And all in all, for that, I want you. For taking and forgiving and for playing the game, for praying for my future in the days that remain. Oh, Lord, for that, I hold you. One of the, I mean, one of the most amazing love songs that's really ever been written. And I think this song is subject to a lot of different interpretation. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. That's why it's great art. I, I was looking up different opinions on the meaning of the song, and the one person said this was their story. After Bad Out of Hell, Meatloaf got really, really famous, and this song was about how his wife saved him from dying. 
nice story, except it was on Bad Out of Hell and Jim Steinman wrote it. I'm sorry. You know, but if that's, if that's what it means to a person, then that's what it means to a person. So, as you guys might remember, another song I played a YouTube video for you of Jim Steinman talking about writing the song and things like that. And in the same interview, he talked about this one. I was going to play it and I debated it. I'm not going to play it for you. And I'm going to tell you why. It's there. I have a link to it. If you want to see it, you can go see it. However, however, for some of you, it may ruin this song. There's a particular line in the song that's subject to interpretation, but it's not if you ask the guy who wrote it what he meant. Um, and for some people, it would ruin the song. For me, it doesn't ruin the song at all. I kind of think it's funny. And I kind of think it actually is more fitting than I think most people would, but that's my sensibilities. Anyway, I the other thing about this song I kind of wanted to talk about before I left you with it is, it is a crescendo. It is this building, this huge building of the song. And I think that's why it's at the end of the album. It just caps this thing off. And then when it ends, what, I, what I've always found so artistic about the song, it ends, it's just boom, it's gone. It doesn't fade out. It's bam, and it's gone. And I think it is this whole theatrical component of Steinman and Meatloaf working together to build this album to something that was designed, like I've always said, I've never found an album before or since that I enjoy as much as I do this one, listening to every, like 45 minutes of just listening to one album as it was designed to flow together. And it ends with that, there's no doubt it's over. And then I've been saving this too. I think Meatloaf has some magic when it comes to hitting you with performance. People have always said, like, the guy's just kind of ugly and fat and whatnot. And he actually looks a lot... He, I think Meatloaf may be the only celebrity, the only big-time rock and roll celebrity that was famous in the 70s that looks better in 2017 than he did in 1977. He, I think he actually looks better, but he's still not exactly a GQ magazine cover guy. And poor guy, his voice ain't what it used to be, that's for sure. But, man, to ever have it, it's just amazing. But I think that's part of his magic. You see this guy, he's fat, he's got long, scrangly hair, he's kind of short, and he's on stage with this hot girl, and he opens his mouth, and wow. Wow. At least we not judge the book by the cover, eh? Anyway, with that, I've enjoyed taking you through the Bad Out of Hell album. We actually have some things that will tie back into it in future episodes coming, and some other really cool songs coming down the road. Tomorrow I'll be here with you. For the listener call show, because my voice is back and I can do it for you. We'll have the expert counsel show at the end of the week. Lots of rewinds coming next week because the TSP workshop is up and running and we'll be uh, starting on Wednesday. I've got a lot of work to do, so we will be doing rewinds Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'm hoping to have an expert counsel show for you on Friday. We'll see. We'll see. It depends on if I get enough of people off the Pikers list and get enough material to do two shows for you this Friday and put one in the can for you. Might have one other little surprise and keep limiting it to three rewinds. We'll see what I can do. I'm doing my best for you. Anyway, with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And I never knew how the fire could be burning on the edge of the asphalt. And now the chili can.
shaking in the rain when I'm feeling so dry for giving me the answers when I'm asking you why and my oh my for that I thank you for taking in the sun when I'm feeling so cold for giving me a child when my body is old and don't you know that I need you for coming to my room when you know I'm alone for finding me a highway for driving me home and you gotta know that I serve you for pulling me away when I'm starting to fall Love you. Oh, I've been most of. 